millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm Jem Daduchu and I'm ready to take you on a journey. I'm get a piece of pop culture. I strip it all down and reveal there in the centre is a piece of real history. A piece of history you might not have even realised was lurking there in the first place. And that's why I love doing this podcast and sharing this stuff with you, because I like pop culture and I like history. So I hope you like both sides of this too. This time round, we're going to be talking about Bram Stoker's 1897 best-selling masterpiece, Dracula. Now, if you're sitting there going, Jem, uh, yeah, this is happening way after Halloween, or indeed you could be listening to this at any time. In a way, that's the point. This isn't the Halloween special or anything like that. Dracula, and in particular vampires, are a perennial favourite. Since that novel in 1897, vampires just keep cropping up again and again in, in books, in movies, in video games, in TV shows, all over the place, in many different iterations. And that's what we're kind of going to explore today, because some of the things you know about vampires have a historical anchor. Some of the things you know about the novel have a historical anchor. And that's why we can talk about vampires any time we want to. So, let's start with the basics, shall we? Bram Stoker, unusual first name. It took me years to find out that it's the pretty obvious abbreviation of Abraham. So Abraham Stoker, he's an Irishman who spent most of his adult life in Britain. And if you were to talk to a Bram Stoker in, let's say, 1896, he would be very happy. He would be better known as the personal assistant to Sir Henry Irving, who was the owner and runner of the Lyceum Theatre in London. So he was a very well-respected man in society, working for a creme de la creme of London arts and theatre and things like that. So Bram Stoker was comfortably well off. And what's interesting is that when the book finally was published, it, he, by then, Bram Stoker was about 50 years old. 
This was not what he did as a young man and then lived off the earnings for the rest of his days. Not, a, not at all. And it is a sort of quintessential Victorian era novel. Now, we know that Queen Victoria was going to die within the decade, but we're talking in the 1890s when the British Empire was at its peak, where Ireland had yet to become independent. And an Irishman was just sort of plying a, a trade without much political agenda ju just in, in the streets of London. So already you're getting a little bit of a, a cultural snapshot of a society that's basically evaporated 120 plus years uh, later. Bram Stoker himself actually lived till 1912. So in theory, it is just about feasible that there's somebody alive today who maybe as a baby was introduced to the very old Bram Stoker. So there is a, there's a potential link to the real living world of the now, Jem said. So that's a little bit about Bram Stoker. And uh, it actually took him quite a bit of time to, to write the book. He, he basically went on holiday and sometimes he would take time off. And he, he liked living in coastal regions. He did it up in Scotland. Um, uh, but also he spent quite a lot of time in Whitby. Uh, now, Whitby is a fine English coastal town. But Whitby is not sort of dripping with macabre Gothic horror. But because he liked Whitby so much, there it is in the novel. And if you like, the, the importance of Dracula is it pulls together all these various bits of folklore and ghost storiness and turned it into what we today see is the standard blueprint of a sort of vampire story, shall we say, with all the, all the various trappings. Now, to be clear, there had been stories of evil spirits trying to sort of do harm to people, you know, people rising from the graves. That kind of stuff has been around for thousands of years. And people have sort of said, oh, you know, the original vampires, if you look at these legends from like ancient Mesopotamia, it's sort of like, I'm sorry, but the idea of a malevolent spirit that's going to sort of suck your life force or drain your blood or something like that, that is quite a, quite a few steps removed to what we mean when we say vampire. But I want to sort of jump into a little bit of the history because... It's interesting. People were genuinely scared of the dead rising from their graves. And there are things that archaeologists say with a sort of very slight hint of humour, because archaeologists are humans too, they refer to vampire burials. And this is not made up. This is not something in a schlock horror 70s flick or anything like that. Not at all. Basically, the sign of, of what we would call a vampire burial is one of two things. Either you find a skeleton that has a large piece of stone over its chest, or, and this is true, you'll find a skeleton where the mouth is deliberately open and like a part of a brick or a stone is sort of shoved into their mouth. And this is clearly to stop the dead person from causing the living harm. Exactly what the rituals were around this. A few have been found with like, you know, the stones have got some kind of fragmentary reference to like, you know, maybe a psalm or or some part of, of you know, Christian prayer. The, the ones in the mouths never seem to, never seem to. And they're not just in Eastern Europe. They're pretty much all across Europe. And of course, a bunch of Europeans went to America. So there's even a few in colonial America too. So this ritual of being scared of the dead 
returning has been around for centuries and it, it crosses all kinds of national and ethnic barriers as well which i find pretty interesting that there is this kind of fear of of the dead now if you are aware of the basic principles of physics and things like the second law of thermodynamics, entropy, how things basically become more chaotic and cool, then there is absolutely no way short of supernatural, non scientific ways that the dead should rise. You've had in the last sort of 20 years, stepping away for a moment from vampires into another imaginary sort of standard type of monster, zombies. You know, they've been around for a long time and there was even an article five, six years ago where some wag had decided to question their local authority in England. This is, this is not something happening in Texas where you might imagine this would happen, but you know, somebody basically wrote into their local authority because local authorities do have to answer questions from local citizens saying, you know, what is my local council's preparedness for in the event of a zombie apocalypse? And the response was, we have no plan. And this turned it, I mean, clearly it was a, a slow news day because this person was able to make a little bit of hay, you know, while the sun shone and went, you know, isn't it disgraceful? They blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay, fine. I'm pretty sure that there is no government on planet Earth that has plans in the event of dragon attacks either. Zombies aren't a thing. Now, maybe at some point I will do a history of zombies. If that sounds interesting, maybe hit me up on Twitter and go, yeah, give me the zombie go goodness and I, I'm happy to do that. But, you know, there is this idea, this sort of pervasive idea of the dead could rise again. Now, there is no logical sense to this. There is no evidence of this. But it's something I think we all fear because it's this sort of unstoppableness. It's the it's how unnatural, literally, this should not be happening. And therefore, that makes it fundamentally scary. So taking ourselves away from... 3,000-year-old legends about ghosts in forests that could get you. If you start looking at the idea of vampire fiction, it pretty much starts in the 1700s. Quite a lot of it is going on in sort of Central Europe, the Holy Roman Empire, that kind of area. And by the end of the 1700s, you've even got Goethe writing poetry that alludes to this sort of vampiric ideas, people rising from the dead. And, you know, it, it's closer to what we would consider a vampire now than what we thought of them 3,000 years ago. Now, if, if you're unfamiliar with Goethe, the best way to describe him is he is to German literature what Shakespeare and Dickens is to English literature. He is sort of frequently seen as the German language's titan of sort of literature and not novels. With that in mind, we move into the 1800s. We get Byron in 1813 writing The Glaeo, which again is a sort of vampire type poem. But then we get the, the famous Lake Geneva summer of 1816 ghost story competition, which had Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, William Polidori and Byron there. And they all were sort of like telling ghost stories. And perhaps the most famous one to come out of this ghost story is Mary Shelley, told the original version of Frankenstein. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. But perhaps slightly less well known is John William Polidori. He did a story that he turned into in 1819, took him a few years to write it down, a novel called The Vampire with a Y-R-E at the end, Vampire. So he is sort of like the first English language 
novelization. And again, we're, we're getting more to the idea of rather than it being just an ethereal ghost, you know, an actual sort of man in the shadows, biting necks and draining blood, and he's from the undead world kind of thing. We're, we're starting to get pretty close to what Bram Stoker did. So Bram Stoker himself in no way invented vampire literature. But what Bram Stoker did is he kind of invented the structure of what we would expect a vampire story to be. So for starters, he was actually fairly well-traveled Stoker, although he never went actually to Eastern Europe. And so he starts placing it in Eastern Europe, and he's clearly vaguely aware of some stories of the past of violent man called Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Tepes, Vlad III of Transylvania. And so he starts linking these stories to somebody more historical. Now, even then, over the century since the story, they've made it more overt. It isn't like you get a biography of Vlad the Impaler in the novelization of Dracula, but for starters, you get the name Dracula. Now, that is literally the nickname or sort of semi-title of Vlad, and it sounds cool, but there's a reason for it. You see, during the Middle Ages, there were lots of collections of knights under a sort of a, a, a chivalric order. They were sort of like gathered together. The, the first one, and perhaps best well known and still existing today, is the Order of the Garter, which was created by Edward III at the Battle of Crecy. We're talking about the middle of the 1300s here, and basically the key knights who fought alongside him at this great victory over the French, forgetting about basically the archers that did all the hard work. But basically, he said, right, we're all going to stay together. We're going to be part of a club. And it's basically the most exclusive club in Europe. And, and that started it. And there were there, suddenly there, there was an explosion over the next sort of 50 to 100 years of lots of other orders. Now, in the East, there was specifically the Order of the Dragon, given to noble Christian warriors fighting this evil menace of the rise of this Muslim power in the East called the Ottoman Empire. And it was Vlad's dad who managed to become a member of the Order of the Dragon, or Dracul is, is the way it's called in the local language. And Dracula is son of the dragon, which even when you translate it, is a cool name. So that's where it comes from. It, it actually makes complete sense. It further connects Vlad to the story of Dracula and, and the vampires and all that kind of stuff. So all of this pulled together starts creating the the standardization of the vampire myth. And we get other things that are critical to our alleged lore of vampires, where Dracula, he's got a castle, and he lures somebody in, and he's uh, very vulnerable to sunlight, and he can shapeshift into a bat or like a wolf. And he sort of sleeps in a coffin and he's covered in earth. And then when his ship takes him to Europe, to, to London, I should say, it's under the auspices of the, suddenly on the ship, people are being killed. And all of this, it, it sort of like makes sense. And, and, you know, he can't just be shot and killed. You need sort of specialist weapons, including, and, and this is one of the things that's sort of forgotten, that when they do suddenly finally go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Dracula in the book slash movie slash comic slash cartoon, Dracula has been done so many different ways, that one of the things he's used, is a stake is used, but also a kukuri, which is that knife that you get from the Gurkhas. So the Gurkhas were a sort of key part of the British military 
military. They were seen as almost sort of supernaturally brave warriors and indeed still are to this day. Their knife was clearly imbued with sort of the warrior spirit because that was more effective than a pistol against this evil spirit. So when you pull all these things together, it's like, yeah, yeah, now we're definitely at vampire territory. That that sounds like a vampire to me. And that is largely down to the ideas that Bram Stoker, he was influenced by earlier works, no doubt about that, but he put his own definite spin on it too. So when I turn around and say best-selling novel by Bram Stoker, that didn't happen overnight. What's interesting is that in 1897, when the novel was first released, it came out to good reviews. People liked it, but it took a while for the word on the street to spread. And it's become a bit like Lord of the Rings starting fantasy. It's like, did Dracula start gothic horror? And it's like, well, you know, there is actually quite a lot of stuff earlier than that that, that couldn't fit into that category. But it certainly was one of the tent poles, you know, one of the pillars of what gothic horror would become. And this is where I want to sort of point a little bit about the, the differences between Dracula and some of these early things. I said sort of like these evil spirits trying to get you and all this kind of stuff is, of course, one of the things you keep getting again and again is this romantic angle. And this is weird because we don't find leeches sexy. We don't find great white sharks ripping to pieces seals romantic. And yet, this idea of this undead creature sucking out your blood against your will, causing you harm, damaging you, corrupting you with an evil spell to, sort of to make you placid while they feed on you. When I put it like that, I hope you're sitting there thinking, ugh. And that's the point. They do you no good. And yet there is, and I'm going to have to be very careful about this because you very quickly slide into topic. I try and keep this podcast sort of uh, kid friendly, as it were. So I'm sure as an, uh, if the adults listening will know, there is a huge range of, shall we say, very romantic vampire fiction movies, etc. And the question is why? Why would we find, like I say, a leech, which sucks your blood, revolting and yet a vampire sexy? And Stephen King, again, to keep my clean rating, I will paraphrase him slightly. Um, he basically said what it is about the vampires, and in particular in Bram Stoker, which a lot of people have riffed on ever since, is the seduction. If you're in a relationship, you'll know that the heat, you may love your partner, I hope you do, but like five, ten years into a relationship, the heat is not the same as it was in the first six months. And that's what the vampire thing catches. The glint of the eye of a stranger, the seductive elements of it all. They generally don't turn in, don't suddenly, their face doesn't turn into the face of a leech or, you know, lamprey eel as they sort of like smash into the person and blood sprays across the wall. Not at all. It's always portrayed as sort of almost like a loving embrace. Again, I'm really impressed with how I'm able to say this without sort of becoming graphic in any way. I'm sitting with a big smile on my face right now. So my point is, yes, there's this seduction element that, that can work really well and is heavily there in the Bram Stoker one. And this is taken even further in the uh, in 
1992 movie, which most people call Dracula or Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Francis Ford Coppola has created some of the greatest movies ever. The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, Apocalypse Now. These are titans of cinema. And so when it'd been a while since he'd brought out anything of note, but when he said he was going to throw all his efforts into, into Dracula, everybody was super excited. The end result is a mixed bag. And one of the biggest problems is, look, I love Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves is one of the greatest action heroes ever, and he's extremely funny in something like Bill and Ted, uh, which he was making around about the same time as as Dracula. But I think even Keanu Reeves will say that, you know, he's not the world's greatest actor and he certainly isn't renowned for his accent work. So when he's playing a, a British gentleman, you are the weakest link. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But the other thing that Bram Stoker invented was, of course, the Van Helsing character, the sort of vampire hunter side of things, which was is played with huge gusto by Anthony Hopkins in the movie. There is a wonderful smash cut, by the way, in the film where they cut off a vampire's head and it instantly cuts to somebody slamming a roast on the table. So it's actually less graphic than you think it is. But you get for a split second, you think, oh, that's the severed meaty head of the vampire. It's like, no, 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 that's that's just dinner. Coppola, when he's when he's on fire, he can direct an amazing movie. And this is one which is a let's call it a flawed masterpiece because it's certainly a a good film, but it's not necessarily a perfect film like Apocalypse Now. 
The point is, in this one, they dive even deeper into the whole Vlad the Impaler side of things and the sort of like the, the wounded, doomed romance kind of thing. Gary Oldman playing Dracula, sometimes in a strange choice, very weird wig looking like an old man, kind of like the Emperor from Star Wars, and then other times wearing a top hat and sort of uh, tinted uh, glass uh, shades uh, in the streets of London looking very much like the dapper gentleman. But there's this uh, this romantic side of things, the seductive side of things, and, and I think that's one of the things, one of the great things about vampires is you can mould them into lots of different ways. If you do want a full-on terrifying movie of this undead beast, unstoppable, just hunting you down and you're completely outgunned, you can absolutely make one that fits in like that. If you want to make a kind of doomed romance one, you could make one like that. If you want to make it more pop-friendly, Marvel movie. When Black Panther came out, that was an important movie in the pantheon of both cinema and black cinema and, you know, creating heroes that people of colour could relate to rather than somebody like Captain America. But when people say, oh, you know, it's the first great superhero movie featuring a, a black superhero, it's like, do you not remember Blade? There were three of them. Now, the third one wasn't particularly good, but one and two really kicked butt. But these movies are very bloody. Blade, played by Wesley Snipes, black guy, he is a daywalker. He's, he's sort of half vampire, half human. So he's got all the vampire abilities and none of their weaknesses. And, you know, he's got guns with garlic tip bullets and silver tip bullets and things like that. And he's got a silver sword. And opening scene in the first Blade movie is just amazing where you've got this big rave. It's the 90s again. It's the 90s. So you've got this big rave in this sort of warehouse and everyone's like jumping up and down to this heavy house music and it's so cool. And then, you know, everybody raises their hands up to the water sprinklers and it's sort of like, what's going to go now? Go on now. And then suddenly out of the water sprinklers isn't water, but it's blood. And, you know, suddenly half the people in the club turn into vampires and the other half think, oh my God, we're all going to get eaten. But then suddenly Blade jumps in. He just rips his way through all the vampires. Really cool scene. Absolutely none of that is in Bram Stoker's Dracula, but it's definitely, definitely a, a vampire movie. So if you want to go in that direction, you can sort of like go super gory and sort of heroic action. Or you can do Twilight, where we're going to take vampires and make them rubbish. Why don't they stay in sunlight? Is it because they burst into flame because they're unholy creatures of the night? No, it's because they sparkle. I'm not making this up. If you haven't seen Twilight movies, you know the whole sort of sexy, dangerous thing I've just been mentioning? Do you know what the key, key vampire in Twilight drives? He drives a Volvo. <laughs> it's just, it's like, we're gonna take vampires and we're gonna take everything that's cool about them and throw it out. Oh, and because there's a thunderstorm, finally they get to play vampire baseball. What's that like? Baseball, only louder. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just awful. But what I wanted to do as we're sort of like heading towards the, the end of this particular episode is go back to the history again and talk a little bit about Vlad. Because what I find fascinating is because of the vampire connection, and indeed, this is a quick plug for Greg, the editor here. 
Greg and Felicity's uh, adventures. They do these travelogues. Obviously, they haven't been able to do any during lockdown, but they've done great travelogues in places like Mexico. But they've also been to Transylvania, where they're sort of following in the footsteps of what they can legitimately find of existing stuff about Vlad. And the answer is, well, I mean, actually, I don't want to give you the answer because you need to see this. Greg even got permission to fly a drone around the outside of a castle. So it's got these amazing shots. You know, you'd think that the BBC made uh, made that uh, documentary. So please, please check that out. I'm sure there'll be a link on this podcast. But what we talked about behind the scenes is the sheer passion that, you know, Felicity, Greg's wife, has about this. And that's great. But the thing is, though, Felicity and so many others who, you know, like their vampires and stuff like that, how much do they also pay attention to 1400s Ottoman history? You know, as soon as I say that, it's like, what? Don't care, mate. I mean, here's something. You might have heard of the Great Siege of Constantinople, 1453, Mehmet the Conqueror. The Ottomans capture the Byzantine capital, which has withstood more than a dozen sieges over a thousand years. And that's a great moment. Most, if you know your history, you probably know that event. Well, it was still under Mehmet that he was expanding into Transylvania against Vlad. And yet most people don't even know the Ottoman emperor, Sultan, that was fighting against Vlad. You know about the impalings and things like that. And and this is where it becomes hard. Vlad ruled Transylvania three times. You can argue maybe he gets kicked out once because of politics, but if you've been kicked out twice, you're probably either not a very good leader or people hate you. So all this stuff about him being romantic and kind of misunderstood, we do have limited facts, but the facts aren't looking good for Vlad in terms of, a, of an actual leader. Now, there are several examples that he, um, what was traditional across all of Europe, is if I beat you in battle, to make sure that you, Mr. Landowner, Mr. Local King or Prince, stays stays on my side, because you're licking your wounds now, but I definitely won, is you've got to give me your kids and I will raise them. Now, they're not raised in prison. They're raised in absolute opulence. But, you know, I've got your kids. So if you rebel, yeah, I might just uh, shove them out the window or something like that. And Vlad was one of those children. So he grew up in the Ottoman court. He rubbed shoulders with Mehmet early on. Well, we don't know this for a fact, but it would be highly unusual if they if they didn't. So the point is that Vlad was fluent in Ottoman Turkish. And we know this because on one occasion, at least one occasion, he actually managed to march up with all the correct uniforms and talking perfect Ottoman Turkish, basically convinced them to throw open the gates of this particular fortification in, in sort of Romania. And they all came in and they killed the, the garrison. You know, he did great hit and run tactics. There was another time when the entire Ottoman army with Mehmet was sort of set up encampment at night. And basically he knew that he would be, Mehmet would be in the most opulent tent. So went for it. Unfortunately, he got the Grand Vizier, which is like the prime minister's tent instead. There were two big glorious tents. He happened to pick the wrong one. But if that had gone slightly differently, he could have killed Mehmet and that would have saved his nation. This is why Vlad is seen as a sort of a national hero today, because he mainly because he fought against the Ottomans. But if you actually look what he was doing in his actual area of control, it was bad enough for him to be kicked out twice. And we know for a fact that he impaled and tortured people. And yes, medieval Europe was a rough, tough place where you know torture happened quite a lot, but he was notable. If you get people writing down things, that means it's notable enough to to be remembered. And if he's impaling both Turks and local population on spikes, 
well, you, a, you can see why this is going to get linked to vampires, but B, that's that's not normal. That that did not happen in France at the same time. So look, just because the, the classic thing, my enemy's enemy is my friend, if he was sort of like fighting a brave rearguard action against an expansionist empire, if that sounds cool, I guess it is, but that does not make him inherently a good guy. But it does get people at least a little bit into the history of the Ottoman Empire at a time, you know, it's, it's interesting. People basically know three things if they know anything about the Ottoman Empire. They probably know about the fall, fall of Constantinople in 1453. They might well have heard of Suleiman the Magnificent, and he was about a hundred years later. And people are probably aware that there was a fighting in Gallipoli in World War One. So that's it. Those are three things. But if you're thinking about it, it's like, oh, hang on, you're talking about the Ottoman Empire still being around in World War One, and yet it was around in the Renaissance. It's, yeah, yeah, huh, yeah, absolutely. That's that's the thing. It was an incredibly long-lasting civilization, and is worth reminding yourself that, of course, that if you have Dracula written in 1897, it's written at a time when the Ottoman Empire is still around, when that, that area of Transylvania and Romania were fighting for their independence at that time, but were still very much connected to the Ottoman Empire. And I find that absolutely fascinating. It shows you that there's, you know, history across the whole of Europe captured in the vampire laws and myths and stories. And that's why I decided to make it a condensed histories this time round. As always, I'm going to sort of appeal to you. I'm going to say, look, if you like this, please, please, I don't know, tweet out a link to this podcast or tell a friend about this podcast. We need to sort of spread the word, spread the love. I'm, as always, at Jem Daduchu on Twitter. You can also catch me on Facebook as History Gems with a G. Um, I do regular five days a week. I post out historical facts on the Facebook page. Greg, absolutely, will be putting down a, a link to the tourism and, and travel around Eastern Europe and Transylvania, the hunt for Vlad. Please, please do watch that and click like and subscribe to his channel. And and that's it for me this time round. I will speak to you soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.